Welcome to the Energized Podcast, where today's talks fuel the future. CO2 is on the agenda today, more specifically, turning it into rocks. I'm your host, Yusuf Khoury, and I'm joined by Mr. Paul Neiman. His extensive body of work in and around energy finds its roots in an entrepreneurial mind. He is the CEO and co-founder of Simpa Networks in India, the co-founder and board chair of Power Trust, the co-chair of the DREC Initiative, and the current chief executive officer at ARCA. With degrees from the University of British Columbia and the University of Cambridge, he has and continues to cement himself as an notable force in the transition towards a, uh, towards a greener future. Paul, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Well, thank you, Yusuf. Very nice to, to be here. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much. So first of all, I would just like to ask you, how are you? How was your day? All okay? Very nice. Yes, it's a typically gray day in Vancouver this morning. You're in Vancouver, correct? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And what's the time difference, if you don't mind me asking? Um, it's 12.37, my time. 9.37 here, so 3. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's a bit earlier for you. So, yeah. Not All right. Great. You get started early here to catch up with the rest of the world. <laughs> Spectacular. All right. So, I just would like to start by getting in. Uh, getting into things, I want to ask you about your background. Uh, kind of where did you begin? Um, maybe from an educational aspect where you start with your education, maybe your entrepreneurial endeavors. The floor is yours. Oh, thank you. Um, so I did my undergraduate at the University of British Columbia in okay. business with a focus on marketing and finance. But um, halfway into that, I realized that my love was economics. So I started okay. more econ and poli sci i see and then um i went on to the university of cambridge to do a master's degree in development oh. economics third I world see. economic development and then stayed on for a phd in economics uh with a focus on collective action theory and how groups of people can solve their collective action problems specifically around environmental issues and forest management um but this was in the late 90s, and the internet was just emerging. <laughs> just coming around. Yeah. And I got very excited about that. And I ended up quitting my PhD wow. to launch an internet advertising technology company, uh, really quite different from the career in international development that I was aiming okay. for. Um, but it ended up being a great decision and a oh, fantastic okay. experience. If I'm not mistaken, it was eventually acquired by Microsoft, your startup? It was. It was acquired by first by a, uh, a company about the same size. We combined our companies, and then we sold the combined company onto a larger company. And then that larger company was bought by Microsoft. And all of this happened within sort of 12 to 18 months. So it was several wow. acquisitions. And, and okay. then I ended up at Microsoft, which was also oh, wow. a fantastic experience. How was that? It was good. It was, um, I mean, as an entrepreneur, I found it to be a very large organization. Uh, it was, of course. For sure. Um, I did have an entrepreneurial role there for some time, sure. which was great, launching a business unit in Canada for Microsoft. Okay. Um, but I really wanted to get back to doing something more entrepreneurial okay. uh, and with social impact. So I, I left Microsoft and uh, started looking at the problem of distributed renewable energy and expanding access to energy in uh, developing markets. Okay. I learned at that time, I, I had already done some field work in India before and had perhaps fallen in love with India. 
Um, sure. And I just I, I learned then that at the time there were 400 million people in India without access to electricity. 400 million people. 400 million people. What, 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 when was this, if you don't mind me asking, around when? This would have been around uh, 2009. Okay. Okay. 2008, 2009. Wow. Um, That's a pretty crazy number. Yeah, it's massive. I mean, more than 10 times the population of Canada. Yeah. Without electricity. Insane. Okay. And that's just India. Uh, you look across Africa, it, the situation was the same or worse. So at the time, there were um, about a, a billion and a half people worldwide, wow. 1.5 to 2 billion people worldwide without access to reliable electricity. I see. Um, and is this where you, so if I'm not mistaken, you co-founded Simpa Networks? Yes, yes, that's okay. right. So so just for some context, Simpa Networks is uh, the company that you've created in India, I believe. Yes. Um, and you have led the company from scratch to over 50,000 customers. You provided solar energy primarily, correct? Yes, that's right. That's right. We looked at the problem. Um, you know, the solar technologies were there. Um, it, 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 it's possible. It was possible then. It's possible now to purchase a solar panel, purchase a battery, lights, fan. You can electrify your home for 500 to $1,000. The problem, you know, if you're living in rural India, um, yeah. the problem, of course, is the affordability. That's probably pretty hefty. Yeah. I mean, the this is the nature of so many renewable energy. 100%. Uh, it's a big Huge upfront cost. And then it's sure. free or, or close to free. And, um, you know, buying a solar panel is like prepaying for 20 years of electricity. I mean, it's a, it's a very large return on your investment. But to get that investment in the first place is probably a hassle. Absolutely. So our innovation was to sell solar as a service. Okay. Most companies were selling solar as a product, which Correct. means you're asking the customer to prepay for decades. Just, just the panel. Just the panel. Okay. And of course, panels useless without uh, lights and perhaps a fan and of course a battery. It's the whole kit. And if you're talking about a household or a small business that has never had electricity, they don't even have the appliances like the lights. Wow. Um, so you need to provide a whole kit. It brings up the, the upfront cost okay. to the customer. So our innovation was to uh, do this on a lease-to-own basis and to sell solar like a prepaid mobile phone. Wow! So you know, with a you prepaid, could pay, you could pay installments. You pay in installments. That's right. With a, wow. with a prepaid mobile phone, you you buy the phone, but it doesn't work until you prepay for air. Exactly. 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 How it works across the most most of the world, and certainly in India. Um, so our idea was to somehow sell solar like a prepaid mobile phone. So it, it meant that we had to reinvent the solar panel. We designed a solar panel with the IoT, Internet of Things technology integrated okay. into the back of the panel. Okay. And this allowed us to remotely control the solar panel, turn it based on, on based on the payments based on. Okay. That's right. So we could wow. provide all. A set of equipment, the panel, the battery, the lights, the fan, sometimes a TV. We had packages with a satellite yeah. TV um, on a uh, on a very small down payment, approximately 20 percent of the cost of the system we could offer to the customer. Right. And then the customer would prepay for service days. So instead of buying talk time or airtime, um, we would sell one day service, 10 days, 15 days, 30 days of service at a time. Wow. We had uh, we built a network of agents in the villages. 
Okay. We were live uh, over about 2,000 villages. So we had uh, wow. the, same, the same shopkeepers that were selling airtime for the mobile phones were now selling um, energy. Solar energy. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, okay. Right. So if you don't, okay, I will get back to this in a bit. But just quickly, so with regards to the technology involved, um, was this something that you came up with yourself? Did you draw on inspiration from other people? Was this something that, I don't know, you came into contact with? Or is this something that you came up with yourself? It's hard to know where these ideas come from. But I think, <laughs> we, you know, at Microsoft, I was working on pricing strategy. Okay. And, uh, so I started, I, you know, I was very interested in how you design uh, your, your pricing to capture value and to deliver value for the customer. And I think what struck struck us early on, the founding team at, at uh, Simpo, was that um, it's absurd to charge people this huge upfront Absolutely. cost. It won't work. It won't work. Consumer doesn't care that it's a panel or, or, or where it comes from. They, it they needs want to be affordable. It needs to be affordable. And, and it, you know, you want the payment to be linked to the value that you're getting in time. Right. So if you're if you're paying today, you're going to get the value today. That's 100%. how most of us consume things. Hundred percent. You don't prepay for twenty years of coffee, even though you know you're going to be drinking <laughs> coffee for the no, next. No, hundred percent. You want it now, today. Right. You pay, you know, and you end up paying more per cup when you're when you need it, right? Yeah. So, anyways, and that's because you value it at the moment. I so see. Uh, that was, I think, the, the innovation. And then, um, of course, we were inspired by prepaid mobile phones. At the time, there were uh, probably 900 million people using mobile phones in India, yeah. All, yeah. Of, all of which are prepaid. So that was the original inspiration. How do we price and package solar as a service? Wow. And we realized that, well, with a mobile phone network, they can control access because they control the towers and the network. So how could we control access? And that meant we had to design a, a technology integrated yes. into the panel or around the battery that allowed us to turn it on and off based on payments. And I should emphasize that uh, unlike a prepaid mobile phone, with the Simpa energy systems, it was sure. pay as you go, but leading to ownership. So every payment that the customer makes for usage okay also added up towards the total purchase price. So once they've paid- and then they would own it? Then they own it. It unlocks okay. permanently. So after two or three years of using the system- Well, that's amazing. Um, it it's finally unlocks and, and they have full ownership. Wow. I will get back to this because this is extremely interesting, but I do want to cover a couple of more things. Mm -hmm. I'd like to ask you about, uh, first of all, Power Trust, because um, to me, the concept of certifying um energy in a way uh almost sort of legitimizing uh certain types of energy is extremely interesting to me do you mind giving me sort of insight into power trust what it does what's the goal what's the initiative well you know the inspiration for this again many people are involved in in power sure. trust and, sure. and uh this is you know we built the company on the backs of of, of a multi-stakeholder process that that we've been driving over the years um but for me personally, the inspiration came when I was visiting our customers at Simpa and realized that when a household in rural Uttar Pradesh decides to go solar and turn off the kerosene lantern or turn off the diesel generator, they're doing me a favor. There's, there's a positive externality, you Absolutely. know, as an economist, for the rest of the world when anyone goes solar. 100%. And, 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 and yet there was no market 
to price that. There's no sure. market for those positive externalities don't exist. And that means because me sitting in Canada cannot reward or pay my my fair share of that customer's uh, clean electricity. Yeah, it's contribution. I'm not. They're, they're contributing to me indirectly by helping to clean the environment, but I'm Absolutely. not paying for it. And that means there's an underinvestment in solar because the positive externalities are not being priced. Now, in the West, in the U.S., uh, many states, and in uh, much of Europe, there is a market for those positive externalities, sure. and it's been. Um, the instrument is called a renewable energy certificate. And sometimes these positive environmental benefits can be packaged as carbon offsets. That's another way of- yeah, This is a new and emerging thing as well with yeah. the carbon markets. Sure. That's right, that's right. And um, so we saw that in the US and in Europe, there was a, a growing market for corporates purchasing renewable electricity. These are great companies. Um, they tend, you know, it started with, um, the high-tech companies, um, IKEA even was a, actually a leader in this area, okay. committing to power their global businesses with 100% renewable electricity. Wow. And um, there are now probably 400, 350 to 400 companies that have signed on to something called the RE100. If you look at re100.org, you'll see okay. a campaign there where hundreds of companies have publicly committed to power their businesses with 100% renewable electricity. Wow. And in order to do so, they're investing in renewable energy projects near their facilities. They're uh, purchasing renewable energy certificates from projects that helps these projects get financed and built. Sure. Solar okay. wind projects. But we saw a problem with that too. We saw that um, because their load, that is the data centers or the offices of these companies, sure. the load sure. Uh, tends to be in the rich world. They're investing in solar projects nearby in the okay. rich world. And okay. the, the result is that we're getting lots of renewable energy investment here. You're neglecting underdeveloped markets. Neglecting underdeveloped markets. Sure. And I thought, okay, how do we fix that? Because when you look at the climate impact, if you put a new, if you install another megawatt in California, it's being added to a grid that's already pretty clean. There's already sure. a lot of solar and wind there. Absolutely. Um, the same is true in Texas. The same is true in many parts of Europe where there's already a lot of renewable energy. So the true climate impact of every new megawatt depends on what it's displacing. 100%. That makes sense. Maximize the climate impact. You should look for where the electricity is the dirtiest. Sure, you, where you can make the most impact with this one. It, yeah, the gigawatt. Impact and the social impact. Sure. That's right. So the idea behind Power Trust is to help global corporate leaders, sustainability leaders, purchase renewable electricity and accelerate the energy transition in the developing world. So if I'm not mistaken, you're in you're incentivizing these positive externalities of having these clean energy transitions, having these new fuel sources. And so these purchase the purchases of these certificates they finance the projects they finance renewable projects is that correct they help finance yes they help finance it. Um, okay. that's right uh what power trust does it goes to small it goes to project developers solar project developers in okay. multiple uh developing and emerging markets and we sign long-term offtake agreements with wow. those uh customer with those project developers 
agreeing to purchase the renewable energy certificates from them over a five to 10 year period. Okay. With that guaranteed revenue stream, those project developers are better able to go to the bank and get financing for yes, their- Yes, 100%, 100%. Wow, okay. And then, it, and then they can offer the electricity services at a lower cost to their customers, which is, which is what they wow. deserve. That's extremely, like, that's very creative, honestly. Like, it's a very nice setup. I, it's not a loophole, I would say, but it's almost like you've created a sort of new market or in the process of creating a new market. That's right. That's quite, right. Quite and I, should, I mean, again, uh, we're talking about Power Trust, which I co-founded. I'm not involved in sure. a day-to-day -day basis, but I, I, I'm sure. on board. Um, that company emerged from actually a multi-stakeholder effort called the DREC initiative. DREC yes. stands for the Distributed Renewable Energy Certificate. Okay. And this has been an initiative uh, co-founded by Power Trust and um, South Pole Group. Okay. And uh, financially backed by a number of fantastic philanthropies like the Good Energies Foundation, the Shell Foundation, um, development finance institutions okay. like um, uh, IFC and what was the CDC group, what, what is now BII, British International Investment, sure. um, and, and several others. Um, involved in that multi-stakeholder initiative were some corporate buyers of renewable electricity, many project developers, and over about two and a half years working through the pandemic, we helped create this new market instrument and build demand for it as well. And this is, this is the DREC. This is the DREC. That's correct. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Extremely interesting because I believe it does create this kind of like, um, it's a mechanism for certifying energy. If I'm not mistaken, it's almost like you are creating an entity through which you can certify and legitimize this transition. Yes, that's right. That's right. Wow. And for each of these, remote energy projects, there's remote sensing. So we get real-time data on how much energy has been generated from these uh, from these projects once they go live. Spectacular, spectacular. And I now, after all of this, very interesting stuff, I want to get into potentially the most interesting, which is Arca. Yes. Because I saw this online and I was just, yeah, I was taken away, honestly. Like you, you, you take carbon dioxide and you, expedite the mineralization process using specific rocks. Do you mind getting into that company? What's the inspiration of the rebranding? I know you rebranded. Mm -hmm. uh, yes. It was carbon, if I'm not mistaken. That's right. It was carbon minerals. Okay. Yes. Okay. So please give me some insight into the company, how it works. What are the technologies involved as well? Yeah. Well, Yusef, you know that um, there's already too much carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. It's, it's one of the biggest problems we have to tackle as a, as a collective. Absolutely. I mean, we need to uh, transition to clean energy, right? We need to cut emissions, I think, by 50% by 2030, yes. another 50% yes. uh, by, by 2050. So the energy transition, we, we need to do absolutely everything we can to accelerate the energy transition and Completely. reduce emissions. But there's also this, this fact that there's already too much CO2 in the yes. atmosphere. Yeah, we're above the target. Yeah, the complexities of the global economy and, and the sources of emissions, it's going to be difficult to actually reduce emissions to zero. So 100%. we need to develop technologies and we need to be investing today into technologies that can actually remove CO2 from the atmosphere. 
you know, um, in British Columbia here, um, we have had over the past couple of years, extreme heat in the summers. Yeah. Um, the town of Lytton, um, destroyed by fire. Wow. Um, and, if, and, you know, I'm also touched by, uh, what we saw in Pakistan last year. Yeah. Flooded. Devastating floods. Devastating. Um, so for tens of millions of people around the world, the climate crisis is now. It's not. It's a real thing. Exactly. Real thing. exactly. That's right. So this is really the motivation, the inspiration behind ARCA was for the co-founders to leverage their expertise in geochemistry and geology um, to help capture atmospheric CO2 and transform it into rock. Wow. And, you know, the idea of capturing CO2 from the air and transforming it into rock sounds incredible. Sounds um, like a fairy tale a little it bit. It does. But really, <laughs> we're, we're, we're accelerating a natural geochemical process called carbon mineralization. I see. So carbon mineralization occurs when CO2 from the atmosphere chemically binds with magnesium and forms new magnesium carbonates. Sure. So, um, what? So, our our co-founder and head of science is Professor Greg Dipple. He's okay. a, he's been at the University of British Columbia for more than twenty years. He's been wow. in the field uh, uh, as an academic for more than thirty. Um, over the past twenty years, a significant part of his work has been on understanding, and then of course accelerating, um, uh, carbon mineralization, and in particular sure. in the context of uh, critical metals mining. Sure. Yes. So the problem with ultramafic rock, which is the, the kind deep. of rock that we need to work with, the problem is it's typically buried deep in the ground yeah, and not exposed to air and not sure. doing this work. Now, um, I'm told that when the Himalayas were pushed up 60 million years ago, um, it exposed a lot of ultramafic rock and led to millions of years of planetary cooling as well so again this is a well understood geochemical process forgive me i may have the dates wrong on that no 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 but um, uh, the ultramafic rock is typically buried deep in the ground so what what greg discovered was that there are certain kinds of mines where the target metal let's say nickel okay. is hosted in ultramafic rock okay so a good nickel mine these days might be, let's say, 1% nickel. Of the ore, only 1% nickel, which means 99% of what the mining company is pulling out of the ground is not nickel. Okay. And it's often, but not always, it's often ultramafic rock. Wow. So to okay. extract the nickel, they crush the rock and then pulverize it into a very fine powder, get the, through various processes, get the nickel out, Sure. And then the byproduct, the leftover, which is 99% of the material that's been mined, is left over as mine waste, sometimes sure. mine tailings. Yep. And this is laid out in what's called a tailing storage facility. It could be like a pond or sure. uh, kinds of mines where we're working. It's typically dry um, or a little bit wet, but not, not um, underwater. Sure. And uh, these mine tailings, are because the surface area has been increased because you've taken this rock that was buried deep in the ground you've well, crushed, crushed it into the water yeah. you've increased the surface area um so what professor dipple discovered was that these mine tailings are 
passively, accidentally, already capturing CO2. Okay. And uh, he published a study at a very large nickel mine in Western Australia called the Mount Keith Mine, uh, now owned by BHP, very okay. large global mining company. Right. Um, he discovered that this one mine was capturing about 40,000 tons of CO2 per year. Wow. Accidentally. Well, so, so it, it wasn't any intention involved just surely by the presence of these rocks. That's right. Capturing. That had been freshly exposed to the air. That's right. Okay. Um, now that's interesting. And it's helpful in a small way towards the climate crisis, but sure. it's already happening. The, the interesting, the more interesting question is how do you accelerate it? How do you sure, turn sure. that 40,000 into a hundred, into 40 million? Sure. How, you know, how might uh, carbon mineralization realize its gigaton potential? Absolutely. And uh, so that was the genesis of launching uh, ARCA at the time called Carbon Minerals. So Greg came together with two co-founders, Bethany Ladd and Peter Sherman. Peter was working with Greg as a postdoc and um, Bethany, a hydrogeologist, was working with Greg as his uh, lab manager, managing multi-million dollar research projects. And they'd, uh, over the years, they'd worked with 30 plus mining companies, analyzing material, doing wow. pilot studies on- uh, So they're very hands-on. They do the, the research themselves, Absolutely. the work themselves. Absolutely. Wow, Geologists that's... love to get out there. <laughs> that's their the cup project. of tea. Absolutely. Absolutely. Sure. <laughs> it's fantastic. Um, so yeah, the direct experience um, that, that the team has, and they develop some new methods for monitoring and verification. Yeah. Um, so this was their inspiration for launching the company. And they, they formally launched the company in September of yeah. 2021. And by this time, I was working at the University of British Columbia. I had uh, sold a company in India to a large French energy company called NG. Okay. I moved back to Vancouver. I joined the University of British Columbia as an entrepreneur in residence. Wow. So we have a program at, at UBC called Entrepreneurship at UBC, which okay. is a business accelerator program helping startups. Is it like an incubator almost? Absolutely. It's an okay. incubator and an accelerator. So we've got different stages depending on the stage of the company. Sure. And um, I was working as an entrepreneur in residence, mentoring and, and supporting various ventures. I was especially interested in climate ventures. And I, co I uh, together with uh, Shannon Bard, who's another entrepreneur in residence, we co-founded something called the Climate Venture Studio, which is a program within the program to um, accelerate climate solutions. Wow. Out of the university labs. You must have gotten some really cool ideas there. Yeah, well, I was inspired by yeah. cool ideas. Um, and of course, Carbon Minerals or now ARCA was sure. one of these companies I met. And very quickly, I could see that this, this was the one I wanted to jump in. This one makes sense. Yeah. 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 Um, uh, great people. Great. Yeah. People, fantastic. Uh, um, you know, tackling a really difficult problem, yep. and um, and that the team had already developed some very exciting technology and patents yeah. ending for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I have to say, I love the branding. What was it? Rocking uh, CO two, rocking the world. Was it something <laughs> yeah. like that? Rocking CO two for the planet. Rocking CO two for the planet. No, it's just right. I love it. Uh, so. I wanted to ask you one more thing, and this is a little bit about something put on the site for ARCA. 
um, I don't know how much this resonates with you. It's this clean energy paradox that you described on the side. Yes. yes. Um, and I think that this is probably, I would like to take your opinion on this as well, probably one of the most difficult things with regards to the transition is that decarbonizing the system that we have now is probably going to take a lot and a lot of fossil fuels. Um, a lot of the infrastructure and a lot of the vehicles and the existing fleet of things that we use is powered by fossil fuels and carbon. Unfortunately, this releases emissions. Um, so I just wanted to ask you, that, do you see this to be an obstacle in the way of the transition? Do you think there's a way around it? Do you think that the technologies at ARCA and decarbonizing the atmosphere, do you think that that facilitates this transition? What are your takes on this sort of paradox that we're kind of stuck in? Mm, it is a paradox. You know, the where the, the world is transitioning from fossil fuel-based energy systems to mineral-based yeah. energy systems. And, and as mentioned, we need to dramatically and rapidly cut emissions 50% yes. by 2030, another 50% by 2050. So that transition is happening, needs to happen faster. There's a lot of policy work that needs to be done there to accelerate that. But clean energy itself requires a bunch of new minerals that yes. and yes. that volume that's much higher than than what's being produced today. The International Renewable Energy, or sorry, the International Energy uh, Association has published uh, a report on estimating the the uh, the the volume of critical metals that are needed in the future compared to what we're doing. Yes. And, and by critical metals, sorry, do you mind defining those? Is this nickel, cobalt, uh, nickel, cobalt, copper, uh, some of the platinum group elements? Okay. Um, these are metals that are metals and minerals that are required for battery technologies, yep. for electric vehicles, technologies, energy transmission technologies, okay. Okay. Um, batteries and other kinds of energy storage. Um, so if we're going to achieve our goals, and we absolutely must, yeah. then we need to be investing in the renewable energy transition. And the uncomfortable truth is that that means more mining for critical metals, not less. Sure. I know. Mining itself is very energy intensive and yeah. very carbon intensive today. 100%. How do we transition? How do we how do we mine more but have less climate impact and less impact on the land as Absolutely. well? Because it is also very I don't want to say damaging but it does disrupt the natural ecosystem and the natural uh, space of things. Of course, so it definitely human... requires some level of care. Absolutely. All human civilization is is disruptive and destructive i mean well, yeah, cities, you know the yeah. beautiful forests and yeah. and of course we see that every day perhaps we get used to it and sort of forget what was here first yeah. but um and 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 uh it's a blight of course so uh, you know, of course we need to be thinking about and, and not just thinking but acting on reducing our our footprint and and mining also has an impact on nature uh it does take up land um, there's new mining techniques that uh, in that involve less footprint, and there's yeah. you know, the best yeah. mining companies in the world are investing heavily in these new technologies. Sure, there's one area in particular where we can pitch in and help, and that is to help reduce and then eliminate the yeah. carbon impact of mining. Sure. And here is where I think there's um, a potential resolution to this mm -hmm. energy clean energy paradox, because although we need maybe 10 to 20 times more nickel per year yeah. than what the world is producing today. 
There's also an opportunity for nickel mining and several other uh, critical metals to be carbon neutral or even carbon negative. Carbon negative is ambitious, but it's very, very, very I, I think it's possible. I think it's possible if you can scale up your operations. I mean, I'm not super sure with the logistics about how it works and what the stats are, but do you think it could become carbon negative? Yes. Yes, absolutely. We've, wow. we've modeled it for specific mines. We've looked wow. at the specific mineralogy of the mines and we're working with mining companies at all stages of development. Some of the some of the juniors, uh, these are companies that are developing properties. Um, sure. They're they're planning their mine to be low carbon from the outset. They're designing wow. the mine uh, to use um, all electric, um, uh, renewable energy, uh, electric haul, um, electric machines, wow. um, and and of course uh, there, there's there's a major mining company that we're working with uh, that is building. A renewable energy solar plant wow the mine site to power the mine um they've they've had to power the mine with a fossil fuel based power source uh, mm -hmm. gas mm -hmm. uh there's they're they're upgrading that to be lower emissions but they're also building solar um so what we're seeing is that again the best companies are switching to renewables switching to electric uh, equipment and vehicles on yeah. site. Um, it's difficult, it's expensive, it's requiring Absolutely. a lot of investment, um, but we're choosing to work with mining companies that are committed to get to net zero. So they're wow. publicly um, committed to net zero. Um, again, some of the better ones are signing up to other pledges where they're inviting in uh, third parties to review their progress, et cetera. Wow. I mean, you're fueling a revolution, really. Honestly, you are. Well, like, we're, we're piling on, and we're we're it's, uh, you it's know these, these are companies that are already committed to net zero. They're taking a number of other steps, and then we come right. in and help them with the last and a very important step, which to, you Absolutely. know how, best for last. How can we help them leverage their their byproducts, their mine mm -hmm. waste, yep. to actually capture CO two? Um, and you know we have a, a vision for the future where, you know, mines of the future will be producing the critical metals and minerals that we need for the clean energy transition, mining the ground for these critical metals and minerals, but also mining the air for carbon wow. dioxide. Wow! And putting it back into the ground. That's something. That's something. Well, I wish you all the best of luck, and I'm very interested. I'm going to be definitely doing more research and more uh, looking into that now. I do want to ask you a couple of questions before I leave you. I know we're running a bit short on time, but I, I would like to ask you a couple of questions. The first thing is with regards to um, your work and experience with developing countries. How did you see or did you learn or take away any lessons from working in developing countries? Can uh, the lessons you've learned be applied to newer, more developed, cleaner energy markets? Uh, maybe elaborate a bit on that well i will i will say i had a number of um for me profound experiences in in rural india you said uh, you fall you you fell in love with it i would <laughs> like to know about this what 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 happened what happened in india ah uh, well it's such a beautiful country yeah um geographically absolutely beautiful um the people and the culture is so beautiful we had yeah. such a sense of neighborhood and community uh Absolutely. in the neighborhoods where we lived um so much warmer not the climate yeah. but the 
people. Okay. Uh, uh, you know, that there was such a sense of community. Mm -hmm. um, all lovely. And of course, the food. That's great. And oh, the food's great. We yeah. all know the food's great. Oh, that's right. Um, but, you know, in, in working in rural India, it becomes very obvious that um, in developing and emerging markets, so many people are living in very vulnerable conditions and 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 they without the resources they um are unable to weather the storms sure. uh, and and um make it through crises so um the, the the here's one experience that we were visiting one of our first customers yeah um, they had installed a solar energy system on their home and the the customer was thrilled with it yeah um, I wasn't present, but the story was relayed to me. Mm -hmm. the, the the father of the household said, "I'm so happy with this. There's only I only have one complaint. Okay. I wish you were here five years ago." Yeah, yeah. He said five years ago, my wife. We had our our child was a baby then. My wife at night went into the kitchen to get some milk for the baby who was crying, and when she reached in the dark for this canister of milk she was bit on the hand by a snake no didn't see it Sim just she, it was invisible it was just dark so dark oh they, my they, they had no light no electricity oh and they rushed her to the hospital which was so far away and she she died oh no so so these like we take this for granted really like i'm just trying to internalize this just just sight in it itself we need light we need to we need to see we need to operate absolutely for safety for yeah for security just for wow. comfort um and he said, he said if you were here five years ago wow my children would still have their mother a catastrophe would have been prevented a catastrophe absolutely wow and, and you provide you provide these solutions affordably which is what i find quite intriguing because you're catering to the consumer mind at the same time like you can it's very easy to come up with solutions for energy but i think what's more difficult is being able to sell it being able to implement it into real markets being able to provide to people who need it who need it more than they want it so yeah with pricing strategies especially with uh, with these installment payments that you did um i think that people can learn from the implementation of what you have done the technology is there but i feel like the implementation is something really to learn from absolutely i think you know when, when i look at the investments that are going into um uh, climate tech whether it's clean energy generation storage transmission or whether it's uh, carbon dioxide removal and there are so many different approaches to carbon dioxide removal that are being piloted now um and and so many other areas of, of climate tech um it's very encouraging very yeah. encouraging to see how investment in early stage companies in climate tech is increasing year over year. Even last yeah. year where there was a general dip in uh, clean tech investing, sure. um, early stage companies were getting more investment and more deals done and more dollars going in. Um, it's very inspiring. I, I genuinely believe that we have oh. the technologies to stop and reverse climate change. Wow. Um, what we need is more entrepreneurialism. We need more yeah. uh, more people leaning in. We need more deployment, more pilots, um, and there's you know a range of policy tools as well 
uh, that can help. Sure. I was I was just going to ask you my final question is the room for entrepreneurship. How uh, how valuable is it? I mean, judging from your answer now, it's pretty valuable. Um, and from my perspective as a student and someone who's coming up and growing into the uh, into the professional world, um, I think there must be more room for creativity. And I think that it should be rewarded. Um, just yesterday, I believe uh, the Canadian government has provided massive subsidy packages for investing in uh, carbon removal technologies um, and incentives like this, like you said, from the policy side could really, really um, sort of fuel this fire, this, uh, this spark that could start a flame in a revolution, really, potentially a green revolution. It's possible. Absolutely. It's what we need. It's what we need. And we need entrepreneurialism. And I think a lot of, a lot of, for a lot of people, they have a very narrow view of what entrepreneurialism is. There's the image of, what sense? there's the image of the founder, the person with the idea who launches the company. Mm -hmm. And you might, you know, it, it, many people are thinking, I want to have an impact. I want to be entrepreneurial. I'm excited about startups, yeah. but I don't know what my big idea is. I, I, you know, I haven't quite got that yet. Sure. And that, that can be paralyzing. It can hold you back. Yeah. And yet you, you have so much to contribute. Um, joining a startup mm -hmm. is the most, I would recommend for a young person coming out of university to join a startup. Um, at an early stage company, you have an opportunity to wear many hats and to sure. be entrepreneurial in an entrepreneurial organization. Wow. So that that's incentivized now because it's a startup, because it has all this capacity for growth. Mm -hmm. It's just like you do you. Please contribute. Yes. Yes, that's okay. right. And um, in a large organization, I mean, obviously, large organizations can achieve things that no startup uh, can ever hope well, to. Sure. Um, and and we need we need it all. But if you're feeling entrepreneurial, if you feel like that's your nature or that's the level of risk uh, and that's that you want to embrace, if that's what excites you, you don't have to wait till you have your big idea. You sure. can jump in with another company that excites you. You can find a role where you can be entrepreneurial within that organization. You can contribute in, at many levels. Um, and, uh, and, and so I think, you know, it's up to all of us to reflect on what we love, reflect on our passions and, and find the place to, to apply those. I mean, honestly, what an answer. Thank you. For that because it gives me hope as a as a young and an and up-and-coming person uh within this domain uh you know i feel like people now more than ever want to exercise their creativity and leave mm. a sort of mark on uh on the world and i think that can be done through entrepreneurship i think that can be done through exercising creativity and valuing your contribution to a project a meaningful project so absolutely absolutely I agree and you know, there's also people who just love detail and love getting. Yeah. And maybe they don't see themselves as creative, but they see themselves as people who are excellent at execution. Those people fuel the project they, like crazy. Nothing would get done without nothing. That. <laughs> <laughs> nothing. Absolutely, there's a place for all of us, I guess. That's good to know. Anyway, Paul, um, I don't want to take any more of your time. You've been absolutely wonderful. This has been extremely insightful and I hope we can have you on again because I have so many questions for you. I mean, you've given me so much, but you know, it's raised a lot of questions. So thank you so much for, for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. 
Yusuf, thank you very much for the opportunity. It's great. Thank to you. Meet you. It was a pleasure.